Hey everyone, there is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Well, hello again, everybody. This is Pete in almost real time. If things have worked out as planned, you're listening to this episode on or around the 8th of July, 2019. If you're in the U.S., I hope you had a happy 4th of July weekend. I certainly did. Folks, it's been about a month since I released an episode here in Season 2, and I wanted to apologize for that. That's longer than I like to go between episodes. What happened was, this is Episode 10, and originally I had a different episode slotted in here for Number 10 this year, but unfortunately, that episode relies on receiving some audio from some third parties, and they haven't been able to get it to me. And at first it just looked like it might be delayed a week or two, so I was kind of holding out and holding out, but uh, now it's clear it's going to be some time before that audio comes in, so I won't be able to finish that episode until it does. And you're well within your rights of wondering, what's the big deal? Just swap out another episode, and it's just... And, and I'm probably the only person on the entire earth that is even tuning into this, but when I lay out all the episodes for a season, there's typically some sort of meta-narrative thread that connects them all together, and so I put a lot of thought into thinking about which episode appears where in the season. And so the episode I'm sharing with you today, I had originally thought would be either episode 11 or 12. It has just a little bit more of a wrap-up feel to it. But what are you going to do? You work with what you got. And I'd say still, today's story, it feels like it fits this time very well, with summertime barbecues and parties going on. But it also veers into part of my life that hasn't made many appearances on Pete Brown Says. I'm talking about the few years in the late 1990s after I got home from the Peace Corps and I worked in newspapers in Central Texas. I do make some brief mention of this time back in Season 1, Episode 4, which is the episode about my brief ill-fated career as a football referee, but other than that, I haven't mentioned it very much, which is odd because I think about these three or four years often, and because, as you'll learn in this episode, in addition to covering politics or sports, I also had my own column that ran in a few local papers in Central Texas, and this has led more or less to me having a bit more of a written record of this time in my life than perhaps any other three-year period in my history. That written record gets me thinking a lot about things like posterity and standing the test of time and why we do the things we do to try and make our little voices heard for just a moment longer as the indifferent universe marches on. And also, as it turns out, I have some things to say about dead cats. There is some bonus content for this episode. If you subscribe to my newsletter, you'll get a direct link to the bonus content, another sort of hidden episode. Or, this is a long episode, so if you stick around to the end of it, I will let you know at the end of this episode how you can access the hidden episode. So, I hope you'll find it worth your time. I have been surprised to see the engagement numbers for my longer episodes, because they are among my best performing. I hope this one is too. Let's jump right into it, everybody. This is Season 2, Episode 10, Not Invited to the Party. Not Invited to the Party, a meditation on posterity. 
I'm wondering, as I start writing this today, if the title is going to fail to resonate with some people. I think it'll work for a far greater number of us, because I think almost everyone has, at some time, been excluded from something, not invited, as it were, to the party. And we tend to remember these moments because the rotten feelings that surround them can be so intense. But there are people who may have no idea what it refers to, who have never, to their knowledge, been not invited. We may call them charmed, or say everything turns up roses for them, marvel at how they skate through life, seemingly sans difficulty. You're thinking of someone specific right now. I am as well. We all have someone we think of as having this magical ability that makes life lay down rose petals in their path. That's probably not true if we were to do closer analysis. They may simply be better at hiding their struggles, or honestly, just ignorant of them entirely. Or, as is likely the case, we're just not looking hard enough. But if such people exist, people who furrow their brows in confusion at a title like Not Invited to the Party, well, I just can't imagine they'll find much to like in this podcast overall, and this episode in particular. But here's the thing. It is a wonky title, and four paragraphs in, I'm not sure if I'll keep it. Because while we'll get to this business of party invitations in short order, I first need to start with socks. You know, the things you wear on your feet. Last season of the show, I did an episode about an odd and oddly treasured possession in my life, a Mark Spitz pillowcase, which I have had at least since 1973 and has somehow stuck with me through the years. And in opening the episode, I invited listeners to share their stories of the earliest items they could remember. One response has stuck with me. The earliest item I still have from my childhood is a 1975 Hulk comic book that I bought from the corner store, rode down on my bike, and bought it for 25 cents. And I can't remember how many times I perused that, read through it, because it was one of the very first things that I had bought with my own money. What sticks out for me is that one detail, that he bought the comic with his own money. It's not just the earliest thing he can remember owning, it's the earliest thing he can remember earning. I've spent a good deal of time thinking about that difference, and what would be the first thing I remember earning in my life. And I come back to a blue ribbon I won in 1975 when I was four years old. One for a pair of socks. That summer, my mom and two of her friends rented a cabin at Seven Springs, which is a ski resort in Pennsylvania. In the summer, you could rent the cabins pretty cheaply and then sit by the pool. I assume you could go hiking, but with no dads on the trip and nine kids under the age of ten, I somehow don't think the Appalachian Trail was on our agenda. What I do remember was that we kids headed off each morning for a day camp, eight hours of youth activities that stretched until dinner time. As I type this now, I can see the sheer brilliance of my mom's plan in all of this. Each day, she and her friends were freed up for eight glorious hours to sit by the pool, drink Pepsi, and smoke Salem lights. I hope that they enjoyed them. Later in the week, one of the daily activities for the kids was tie-dyeing. Tie-dyeing comes up a lot in kids' activities in day camps, am I right? And this is odd, given how easily it can go wrong. I mean, you get those dyes on your skin, and it takes a good, long while for them to fade. Now, it's likely that I never got the memo about the plan for tie-dyeing that day. And with nine kids running around our cabin, I can see how easy it would be for me to slip out of the house and off to day camp without an appropriate t-shirt to tie-dye, and nobody would notice. So when the counselors told us that we'd be tie-dyeing, and everyone around me started whipping out these plain white tees from wherever the hell they'd been keeping them, I was confused. 
for a minute and then panicky for another in that way that you can panic when you're four or five years old, which is probably the first age at which you can think, should I start to cry about this or should I try to work it out on my own? At least that's what I remember thinking. In general, I wanted to reserve crying for things like hornet stings and badly scraped knees. For getting a t-shirt to tie-dye at a day camp? Eh. And I looked down at my feet where I was wearing white tube socks and sandals. And I thought, problem solved. So I took off my socks, balled them up, and started wrapping rubber bands around them. Then I walked up by the buckets and a counselor asked me what colors I wanted to use. And I said, just purple, please and I dropped my socks into the purple bucket, and that was that. And honestly, I forgot all about them. I forgot about tie-dyeing the instant we ceased to do it. But on the afternoon of the last day, the counselors called us into the lodge and handed back our tie-dye shirts, or socks in my case. They explained we were doing a fashion show, and parents lined both sides of a makeshift runway with their folding chairs. And that was that. I remember, when it was my turn, I walked out in my socks, pivoted around, and walked back, listening to the adults chuckle and clap, but not really getting what was supposed to be funny about all of this. Afterward, they began announcing awards for the different shirts, and when it came to the blue ribbon for first place, they called me back up and had me do another lap in my purple socks and handed me a blue ribbon that says first place on it, while the parents laughed and clapped with what I chose to believe was appreciation. This blue ribbon is a thing I still have to this day. One that I'm holding now, in fact. I don't think I would have remembered this story so well if I didn't have this ribbon. The two are tied together in my mind. And as I look back as an adult, I can see how a cute, slightly confused four-year-old in self-dyed purple socks would pretty much crush the competition in any judged-by-parents tie-dye fashion show. But that blue ribbon? That's probably the first thing in my life that I can remember earning. And it's so odd to me that it still exists as a thing in my life today, some 43 years after my big win. I was at a good-sized birthday party recently. Mostly peeps like me, running up on 50 and talking about craft beers and our jobs and our lawns and vinyl records and other such shit. But there was a handful of millennials there, too including one young woman whom I somehow found myself listening to as she told me what was a very dramatic story of the day her cat died. Now let me say this up front. I am sorry that her cat died. I am. My teenage daughter's cat died recently, and it was very sad all the way around. So just to be clear of my position before we get into this, dead cats are sad. But here's the thing about this story, which was fairly well told, I thought. It was told from the perspective of a younger person who hasn't yet had the experiences and fullness of time that might pump the brakes a bit on her dramatic expression of how this dead cat has impacted her world. Is that cold? Is this one of those moments when I'm being emotionally ignorant? It's just that she told this very long and dramatic story that post-dead cat saw her collapsing on the front porch of her brother's house and ended with her wrapped in a blanket on his sofa, drinking a glass of bourbon in silence. And again, just to remind you, dead cats are sad. Dead pets are sad. Death is sad. Just so we're all on the same page. But the reason that the drama of the retelling was bothering me, I think, wasn't just because I'm older and I've been kicked around a bit by life and I've had pets come and go talking of Michelangelo such that I place less significance on the death of a cat in the greater scheme of things. What was bothering me is that when I was her age, 
I did that shit all the time. And what's worse, I did it on the pages of a daily newspaper, which is how people used to get their news back in the day. At my first newspaper job, I had a very patient editor who hired me with more or less no experience and taught me the trade one hot sticky issue at a time. And while I picked up the knack for reporting and structure of a good story pretty quickly, what I looked forward to every week was the 12 column inches I had been granted in the sports pages to write about whatever I wanted so long as it ostensibly was connected to sports in some way. And truth be told, he was happy to run columns with only the slightest connection to sports. One time, I wrote about how long it took to fry an egg on the sidewalk during a particularly nasty Central Texas heat wave. Brownie, he said, how's this about sports? There's a stopwatch in the photo, I replied. And he laughed and shook his head and said something like, page seven, under his breath. And I was thrilled with page seven, happy to write 12 inches comparing the Walmart parking lot to a NASCAR race, or how a night at the fights is immeasurably improved if you wear a fedora. Dumb stuff, you know, like the stuff you think about in your 20s. If I had a cat then and it died, I'd probably write something about it too. And then something bad happened. A grown-up bad thing. Tropical Storm Charlie rolled through our drought-stricken town and dropped 24 inches of rain on us in a day and a half. My wife and I had been renting a small two-bedroom house at the time, which we loved because it was so close to the river. So close to the river. About 500 feet, to be exact. And so we were flooded out in the worst way. Six or seven feet of water mostly backed up from the sewage treatment plant that was downstream. It rose up in our house, raising up everything we owned and slamming it back down. We made it out with our two dogs ahead of the rise, but not much else. And the next day, the remnants of the interior of our house were on the front page of the paper. The next few days after this are kind of hazy in my mind, just to let you know. The kind of days where you're in and out of reality, both somehow able to cope and not at all sure what to do next. People from the Red Cross dropped off a few garbage bags of clothes. A man from FEMA came and measured the watermark on the walls and looked at me like I was crazy when I told him we didn't have a TV. But we were in our 20s, you know? What do we really have to lose? Some clothes? A few bookshelves worth of books? A goldfish? We spent most of the next few days trying to find and dry out family photos, which we washed and laid out on towels in the kitchen of the church that was putting us up for a few days. I remember how after Mass, parishioners wandered in and looked over our photos like it was an art show of some sort that the church was getting ready to mount. As flood victims, we were far from alone in our community and nearby towns, where many people lost much, much more than we had. But the experience I had gave me some unique insights I was able to channel into my writing for the newspaper. And while I don't today much care for the state of my writing in the late 90s, the few pieces I do recall fondly were written about floods and being flood victims, and they often got promoted up from page 7. While I was trying to pull things back together in the weeks after the flood, I missed covering what was the game of the year in Central Texas Hill Country High School football, San Marcos versus Hayes High, the Battle of Hayes County, an event which the paper dedicated far more ink and pages to than almost any other event during the year. Still, I managed to write 10 inches about it 
including something like this, which has always stuck with me through the years. Later in the week, when I remembered that the game, the game, the big game, was a day away, I told my wife that I thought I'd feel a lot better about things if I could go see it. I believed that at the time. As surely as I believed, the river would not rise and the house was watertight. On Friday, my wife and I moved our few remaining boxes into our new home. Dusk began to fall and the air smelled pure and clean like Friday night should. A smell between autumn and leather, full of promise and peace. Somewhere, I realized, a marching band was tuning up. Ankles were being taped and chin straps snapped into place. Stands were slowly filling and programs were leafed through. James Wright not only wrote of rivers, but of these Friday night games. These big games full of young men who grow suicidally beautiful and gallop horribly against each other's bodies. I knew then that I needed the game of the year much more than it needed me. It would go on to live up to its billing quite well without me. And somehow, just somehow, most folks would make it through their Sunday morning without reading my column. I found these facts strangely comforting for reasons I do not yet understand. I stayed home that night with my wife and our dogs, enjoying the quiet of a house without clocks. We boiled our dishes in large pots of water and bleach, and I was glad for it. As time passed, I wrote about the flood less and less, and when it did make appearances in my column, I realized now I was treading into dead cat waters. Like the time I wrote about my socks. The morning after the waters receded, friends and co-workers came to our house to help us with our predicament. One had gone to Walmart and bought us both fresh pairs of underpants, which I appreciated truly as much as the ones who showed up with cases of beer. Our friend Cecily collected up all of our laundry and went off and washed it with bleach. We were able to save many of the pieces this way, although most of the others were too far gone. Not many of my socks made it through the flood and post-flood bleach wash. Honestly, I was 27 years old and making 7 bucks an hour at the local paper, so most of my socks were already in a sorry state, worn and replete with undarned holes. By the way, what is it with the word darning, right? I mean, you hear it and you only think of someone in a black and white movie sewing up holes in their socks. Am I right? I've never gotten into the habit of darning my socks. I just live with the holes until the feel of them becomes unbearable. I looked it up, and to darn, by the way, means to mend knitted material or a hole in this by weaving yarn across the hole with a needle. So, it's not specific to socks, for whatever that's worth. Also, I looked up darning the participle form first, so I guess I should have been prepared with the gem of a definition that Google provided. Noun. Darning. The skill or activity of one who darns. I love that one who darns. What do you do? I am one who darns. So my black knit socks, wholly, undarned or otherwise, they turned a light shade of purple from the bleach. And despite my wife's objections, I continued to wear them regularly. Those horrible, horrible black socks that get bleached orange that you didn't let me throw out. Do you still have them? What do you, I can't even say anything about them because they are so anathema to me. I hate them. 
that you just have to relentlessly bind yourself to tragedy. It's like Alvy Singer, like the universe is expanding kind of shit. And I can't take it. Seems- you don't you, you shouldn't have a tragedy a souvenir for tragedy. You just shouldn't. As I think back to it, I think that the socks in some way reminded me of my blue ribbon winners. And that helped me feel grounded during the post-flood recovery months. The clothes we wore in those months, by the way, serve as apt metaphors for what the process of recovering from a flood is like. You start with the garbage bag of clothes that the Red Cross gives to you. And I want you to think for a minute about the kinds of clothes you've donated to charity organizations in the past. Pretty rough stuff, am I right? The clothes we found in our bags, mine was labeled with a piece of masking tape on which someone had written, male, large. They were a mixed bag. Certainly worthy of the garbage bag that held them, but not much else. I remember pulling out a pair of triple XL lime green polyester pants and a triple XL white t-shirt that had a lowrider pickup truck and a woman in a bikini airbrushed on it underneath the words, if the truck is a rockin', don't come a knockin'. I remember being transfixed by that A apostrophe in a knockin' that the artist was so careful to place. Don't come a knockin'. I hope it doesn't seem like I'm complaining. Beggars, which we certainly were at the time, cannot be choosers. And my wife and I even joked that we'd save some of these clothes so we could go as flood victims the next Halloween. We didn't, by the way. That was just a dumb joke we made to help get us through a few moments of a rough day. Of the clothes that I could wear that were in the bag, I remember a pair of jeans that fit great, but the thing was, they only had one back pocket. It's not like there had been a second back pocket that had somehow gotten torn off. I mean, these things had one back pocket by design. Imagine wearing these every day and feeling that slight imbalance on your right butt cheek. It somehow reminds you you're a flood victim wearing clothes that someone else gave away. That's what I mean by hazy. Over time, things get better. Your friends, especially those around your size, start to collect up better clothes or spare toasters for you. One buddy gave me an old blazer so I could attend another buddy's wedding. My co-worker Gordo gave me a pair of almost new cowboy boots that he had worn once to his sister's wedding. I still have them, in fact, and wear them to this day. They are the last connection I have to this time. But we're talking about socks, the lightly purple kind that I was wearing around as we put our life back together in late 1998. And the thing I want to admit to you, which is I wrote about my pair of socks in the most dramatic, my cat just died way you can imagine. Here's the context. The weekend of the flood, the weather was so bad that the local university, then called Southwest Texas, but now known simply as Texas State, they had to cancel their football game against Nichols State. That should give you some sense of the weather that weekend. It was so bad, it caused a bunch of Texans to cancel a football game. The game was rescheduled to be made up a number of weeks later. I remember because it was a slow news day in the newsroom, and I was trying to piece together a story about how the upcoming census was important when the fax machine whirred to life. I presume newsrooms don't use fax machines now like they used to, but back then, they were the shit. Ours kicked out a steady stream of press releases that the managing editor would review and sometimes walk one over to your desk and tell you to find out the real story. Good times. The press release came from the sports information department at the university, so it was usually routed to the sports editor. But he was out covering, in quotes, a local charity golf tournament, and it somehow landed on my desk. When rescheduling the game, the two universities decided to create a trophy, in this case a wooden boat oar, and they dubbed the game the Battle for the Paddle. 
The joke was the fans would have had to paddle their way to the stadium on the original game date. It was a brightly written press release, chipper even, very much pleased with itself. And I remember reading it as I sat there in my one-pocket jeans and my light purple socks and having a distinct and clear thought. Fuck these guys, was that thought. And I fired up a new document on my computer, and I began writing that week's overly dramatic sports column, which started, as you might have put together, with my socks. Some excerpts. I speak now of socks, not symbols. Socks primal. Socks worn. Socks stinky. Balled up, rolled up socks. Socks as only they ever will be. I have one pair in particular that survived the flood. They were washed in water heavy with bleach and are now a purplish-gray color, like a bruise healing. And though I should not, when I put them on, I tend to think of them as symbols. One year ago, I was quick to believe in the symbolic. But when the waters went down, I saw my wife pull her wedding dress from a muddy corner, saw horror cross her face. A friend on hand said, You lose the dress, you have the marriage. We bought that. We bought many such exchanges then, because it was all we could afford to do. It's the marriage, not the dress, the home, not the house, the family, not the things. We had no time for symbols, no need for belief, no patience for any god. It is one year later now, a date which somehow deserves comment. Yet, I am unsure of how to do it. This is, after all the sports page. I think about how in sports we have teams named for hurricanes and cyclones, a crimson tide and a green wave, even for lightning, even for heat. But we have no teams named for floods. It was a flood, after all, that canceled last year's homecoming game at Southwest Texas State. Football, the man's game of games, peaked outside at the rains in Central Texas and decided to stay in. I think about these connections to sport, but what I come back to, I am afraid, are those socks. My purplish gray socks that have nothing to do with sports except that I wear them on occasion when covering a game. This is not to suggest that socks in general have nothing to do with sports. Indeed, water sports aside, the one constant between a professional locker room and one at a local high school is socks. Sweaty socks. Balled up, rolled up socks, sweat socks, tube socks, sweat and cotton socks, as socks as ever they only will be. When the homecoming game was made up, SWT dubbed it the battle for the paddle and painted up a trophy or, in the words of the media guide, quote, in recognition of the 1998 floods in central Texas, unquote. And when I read this, I thought, here's an idea created by someone who was not affected at all by the flood. And I thought... What a lousy way to dress up a desperate ploy to generate more interest in a football game. The question, one year later, is not if I feel the same way about the battle for the paddle, nor even, having scrubbed the mud from my life and moved to high ground, if I am doing all right. What I am asking myself, one year after the waters rose, is, do I understand? I do not. Not in any way words can express. One year ago, my life was changed, separated into before and after. We have symbols, after all, to express for us what words cannot. 
So I'll grant SWT its paddle, while I have my purplish-gray socks. They are answers to questions we do not know. They let us know it is all right that we do not understand. We need not rush back into belief. This is what we have now. A painted-up paddle. A pair of socks. Symbols, as ever they only will be. Oh, that's really bad writing. So. No. Is this not how you thought the interview would go? Did no, you think, okay. This is fine. Now, to be fair, they were just trying to drum up some interest in their Division I AA team that was so often overshadowed by the University of Texas, 30 miles to the north in Austin, and arguably by the local high school team. And my column was hardly disastrous to them. Wikipedia tells me that the battle for the paddle was waged 14 times from 1998 to 2011, with each team winning seven. In 2013, Texas State moved up to Division I football, which we now call the FBS, joining the Sunbelt Conference, while Nichols State remained behind in 1AA, which is now called the FCS, because acronyms. So, it wasn't a flood that wiped out the battle for the paddle. It was Texas State's ambition to play with the big boys. I have to admit that I wanted to say Texas State's audacity instead of ambition in that last sentence. But the truth is, moving up to the big school division in college football is not as audacious as it once was, but it does remain thoroughly ambitious. And I'm not sure audacious is the right word I'm reaching for in this transition. It definitely means big and bold, but I'm not sure if we're at a place yet in our language where we can officially add stupid to the meaning of audacious as well. Big, bold, and stupid. Because as I begin talking about the chair, which I'm about to do, well, it's probably going to sound pretty stupid in a dead cat kind of way. So I'm jumping back in time from the flood now, about six years back to 1992. I lived off campus for my final two years of college in a small beige house at the bottom of Jeff Hill that I shared at any one time with three to seven housemates. My housemate Brady was the guy who acquired most of the furniture in the TV room, which was where we spent a lot of time. He brought a couch and chair that had been in his parents' basement, early 1970s Sears and Roebuck stuff, with thick exposed wooden frames, dark stained pine, and brown and gold plaid cushions. Seriously, just Google couch in 1970s and it will be one of the top results. This was good furniture for a house of rambunctious 20-year-old boys, by the way. It put up with a lot of abuse. One of the chairs was a rocking chair. It rocked very slightly, but quite comfortably. It had wide arms, so you could set a beer on one arm and an ashtray on the other, and neither was at risk of falling. We shoved it into one corner of the TV room where we decided it was okay to smoke. Yeah, smoking indoors was still a thing back then. We thought we were being forward-thinking in designating a smoking chair. It was also, for reasons no one could ever understand, very easy to fall asleep in this chair. Something about the light rocking, the slant of the sun that came in through the nearby window. Some people started calling it, quote, the world's most comfortable chair. I spent a lot of time in this chair, smoking and thinking, enough time that it began to be known as Pete's chair. I scratched my name in one of the arms and deepened it with a key as I sat and rocked and smoked and thought. I remember being in a room around this time, a day after some pretty intense college partying, and a young woman had knocked on the front door and, and came into the house and asked me if I'd seen her scuba mask. 
The drinking event, by the way, had involved teams of drinkers, basically, who had to go from location to location, finishing a certain amount of alcohol at each stop. Her team had chosen to wear scuba masks for the whole deal. And no, in case you're wondering, this was not a university-sponsored event. Anyway, she told me she wanted the scuba mask, quote, for posterity's sake. And I thought about that for a long while after she left. This young person's idea of posterity. That we somehow needed to save souvenirs of our weekly drinking adventures. That we for some reason needed to save, low, preserve for future generations to gaze upon in awe. Shortly after this exchange, on the arm of the chair, I began to carve these words. Pete is not for posterity. Break it down! This, of course, was deliciously ironic to my 20-year-old self, at least in the way I understood irony back then. The idea that I carved as deeply as I could so that it would stand the test of time, a sentence declaring that I was against attempting to preserve things for the test of time, or for posterity's sake, as it were. Ha ha ha, 20-year-old me, I get it. I took the chair with me when I graduated took it to Kansas for graduate school. It took up all the space in my hatchback, basically leaving me with room for a duffel bag and my word processor. And for the first few weeks of school in Kansas, it was my only furniture. I slept on the floor and sat in the chair and smoked cigarettes and read Henry James and tried to think of unique things to say about it all. Then, in a surprise and shocking twist, I got married. Oh, what's happening? Before graduate school was over, how could you do this? I got married. How could you? Shocking news out of Kansas tonight. And when my young wife and I prepared to head off to the Peace Corps, and again, more on that experience in an upcoming season, I hauled this chair, this cigarette-stinking, 1970s-looking, carved-up chair, to Chicago, where I asked my new in-laws to store it for me while we were gone. Store it for me for two years. I remember the look on my father-in-law's face, a career engineer, by the way, as he looked at it and said, You know, we can get you a new chair when you get back. But no, no dice for 24-year-old me. I had to have this chair, my thinking chair, for all time and all eternity, despite my professed opposition to posterity and all. I do all of my important thinking in this chair, I told him. You know, for me, it's only in looking back at younger me that I recognize the tremendous restraint many people had in choosing not to punch me in my stupid face 100% of the time. My mother-in-law, of all people, stood up for me, by which I mean my chair. Store the chair, Dan, she implored, or we'll never have grandkids. And I nodded at this, though I secretly thought, ha ha, joke's on you, we're never having kids. Punch. When we got out of the Peace Corps, two years later, we rented a small U-Haul for our move to Central Texas, and it was clear that we could either bring most of our stuff or we could bring this chair. I, of course, advocated for the chair. In fact, I might have demanded it. And my father-in-law sighed deeply, and then he got out a drill, and he took that motherfucking chair apart. I mean, he drilled out all of the glued joints and replaced them with screws and then showed me how to reassemble the thing once I had dragged it down deep into the heart of Texas. Wow, I'm realizing I owe that guy a thank you. As you might guess, the now screwed-together chair was somewhat less structurally sound than the original. 
It had a little side-to-side wobble to it that it never had before. It wasn't much, but it was enough that I could no longer fall asleep in the chair. Still, I was just glad to have my old friend with me on another adventure. And that's when the flood hit. And when I say the flood was unkind in lifting our things up and slamming them back down, it was triply unkind to my chair, which it pushed askance and smashed flat, then brought our heavy bookshelf down on top of. A fitting end, perhaps? Did I carry it with a friend out to the debris mountain in our tiny front yard and lay it on the pile and pour out a shiner bock in memory of my old friend who was clearly not to survive for posterity? Fuck no, I didn't. I loaded that heap of broken chair parts into the back of our station wagon, including the wastewater-sodden cushions, and I drove it to a local furniture restorer. A man who looked at me incredulously when I asked him to put the chair back together and try and save the cushions. I will say this for him, too. I think he knew what an idiot I was. He convinced me to let go of the cushions. He'd sew up new ones. And he kept costs down by not refinishing anything, but instead just gluing it back together. He was still shaking his head a week later when I came to pick it up, even though, as you might by now have come to suspect, I wrote an entire column about it for the sports page. Quote, He gave the pile of my old chair a long look, and then said, are you sure you want me to work on this chair? As if I'd somehow brought the wrong chair into his shop. Yep, I said, this is the one. But he continued to eye me curiously, as if he wasn't sure if I was putting him on or not. So I added, it's my thinking chair, so you know it's pretty important. He nodded slowly, not really in understanding, but more in a, you seem determined to give me money to do this thing, so I might as well do it kind of way. I remember my editor, Randy, reading the first draft of this one and saying, how's this about sports? And before I answered, saying, I give up, Brownie. Just write whatever. As my wife neared the end of the MFA degree, which is what brought us to Central Texas in the first place, she got pregnant. (coughs) And just about everything changed. Suddenly, making seven bucks an hour covering high school volleyball didn't have the same sheen it once had now that it was occurring in the shadow of a looming baby birth. And while I still loved those long nights I spent covering football games all across the Texas heartland, I realized in short order that I needed to be closer to home so I could do things for my pregnant wife, like run out at 10 p.m. for Twinkies and lemon ice-flavored Gatorade. You may or may not know this, but in Texas at least, there was an acronym in sports departments at newspapers called the DSE. It stands for Divorced Sports Editor. Brandy, one of the many members of this club, told me about it just before I left his paper to become a sports editor for the daily paper in the next town over. It's easy to understand how it came to be, frankly, because being a sports editor in a mid-sized town in Texas wasn't just a job. It literally became your life. And if you got into it because you, quote, loved sports, it would soon beat that naivete out of you, usually as you sat on the bleachers of some far-flung fast-pitch softball diamond, scratching down your lead in the fourth inning and urging the damn game to end ASAP so you could get back to the paper by dinner time and start laying out pages for the morning edition. In short order, it became clear that even though being an editor paid more, about nine bucks an hour at that time, it was not going to accommodate my intention, born through my hands-off upbringing, to be more hands-on dad with my kiddo. The DSE, I realized, wasn't like an exit on a highway. It was more like the train station at the end of the line. No matter how fast or how slow you traveled, 
it seemed inevitable that unless you got off the train, sooner or later, you would arrive there. So I got off the train. And in the way you can pivot your life quickly when you're under 30, I resigned my post, took a job with a startup during what was then the first dot-com bubble. I moved us to central Ohio and bought a white Cape Cod with blue shutters. Boom, 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 boom. One quick aside here before I wrap this one up. I spent a night this week in the basement digging through a cardboard box of newspapers looking for the columns that I've quoted in here. While the papers I worked at in the late 90s were just starting to create online editions before I left, the only way to preserve any copies of your writing was by saving the actual paper itself. I was in the habit back then of clipping the columns I really liked and even some of the political reporting I did and then making 10 copies on the copy machine in the office. Sometimes this was because I liked to mail the columns to old friends who I might have mentioned in them, which is something I did often. Other times, it was to send something to my mom, who was my biggest fan, or to my dad, who was my most honest reader. The remaining copies? For posterity, I guess, in a totally unironic way. As I'm writing this now, my daughter, a sophomore, has just turned in her first story for her school newspaper. She's told me all about it, but when I asked if I could read her draft or if she wanted any help with the lead or the structure, she steadfastly refused. I suppose she was right to do so, given how much journalism has changed in the 20 years since I last worked in it. But part of me was crestfallen. Part of me just wanted to twirl a red pencil in my fingers once more and mark up her story and talk her through the inverted pyramid and my own take on it, which very slightly from what they teach you. I want to have the darkroom tech drop off contact sheets of last night's rolls of film and use my loop to select a photo and mark the size and how I want it cropped with a black grease pencil on the sheet. None of these things are really done anymore in the newspaper making business. And I've got to let her make her own way, as they say. So I just let her know the offer's always on the table. Digging through the box of newspapers, which now has that dusty, musty, make-me-sneeze thing going on, I sometimes found 20 or more copies of columns which were just terrible. And a column that I remember fondly, I can't find it at all. As I've been searching, the one feeling I have over and over is a nostalgic recollection of how much I loved seeing my byline every day in the paper. Truly loved it up until my very last day. I suppose that's the same vanity that drove me to make so many photocopies of my clippings or to declare myself against posterity. But there was also something else about it that appealed to me, as if it was a little sign in my life saying, Oh yeah, Petey, you're doing it. You're out there in the world making shit happen, 12 column inches at a time. When I first started with the paper, covering high school volleyball games at 15 bucks a pop, my byline was Daily Record Correspondent, which is a fancy word for sports stringer, stringer being the grubby journalism word for freelancer. When I applied for the political reporter job, the editor-in-chief, a kind and tremendously patient man named Roe, Seriously, imagine the exact opposite of Ed Asner's Mr. Grant from Mary Tyler Moore, and you have Roe. He gave me a two-week trial period, during which my byline was Special Writer. Even though I hated that one, I still brought copies of the paper home every night for my wife to see. Hey, I'd say, here's that piece I did about the bond issue to widen Ranch Road 12. Check it out. In fact, the only way I knew I got the job was when my byline changed one day to simply Reporter. When you're putting out a daily paper, there's not a lot of time for ceremony, I guess. But I am hoping, when my daughter's first issue comes out early next month, that she has the same thrill when she sees her byline as I did. I don't know why I hope that, given what's happened to print journalism in my lifetime. 
but I do. It's a sunny day today as I'm writing in a coffee shop and hoping to wrestle this piece to its end. Sunny after a week of rain, a sultry 86 outside, and yet a few hundred miles to my east, Hurricane Flo is about to batter the Carolinas. Tons of rain will fall, waters will rise, and more people will have that same experience of kicking in their front doors and seeing how the waters have fucked up their lives. And they will smell a smell I can't describe to you, except to say that it's wet and moldy and it never leaves you. Next month will mark 20 years since the flood that wiped out our little home in central Texas. I still remember it every time there's a natural disaster, and in the late fall every time that it rains. And I'm here to tell you, you get through stuff like this. You do. It's a pain in the ass for a long time, a couple of months, maybe even years. But you move on past it. But you are changed by it. It's the kind of thing that splits a life into before and after. A milestone, if you will. And you will always think of the person you were before a little bit differently than the person you are now. I was a sports editor at that other paper when we were preparing a special edition to mark the six-month anniversary of those floods. That paper, by the way, had its offices and printing press completely submerged in the same event. It was bad enough that I think they missed putting out an edition of the paper, which is probably making anyone who has worked in newspapers gasp right now. It was that bad. When I started working there, we were using temporary offices that we had set up in a former beauty salon in a strip mall. My desk was a folding table next to the hair dryers. I tried to explain this shift in identity as we talked about the addition, and the editor-in-chief asked for 10 inches or so, which we ended up running on the editorial page, which was the only time in all of my years of journalism that I appeared there. Some excerpts. In the past six months, I have learned to call the clothes I wear my own, though they came from donated bags that made their way into my life after the October floods. And in these six months, I have neared what I hope is the end of prodigious amounts of paperwork that also came in the wake of the disaster. Our new bed is now just the bed. Our new phone is now just the phone. The carpet cleaners worked a miracle on our area rug, and with each day lived in our new home, I know that we are lucky. We are lucky we were only renting the house the waters consumed. Lucky for our friends and family who came to our assistance in ways that amaze me to this day. Lucky that we were well out of harm's way when the waters rose. But six months later, it is still hard to feel lucky. For as gracefully as we rebounded from the flood, I am reminded of it each day. Reminded of kicking in the front door and stepping into the dank darkness. Of seeing that water does not merely rise but rages and slams, contaminating all that it touches. Instinctively, I went for my high school yearbook. I realized, however, that it likely was somewhere on the Gulf Coast by now. It was in that cardboard box that I'd never found the one that contained all the letters I'd received since I was 12 years old, the one that sat on top of the box of photographs, baseball cards and journals, a master's thesis and six chapters of an unfinished novel. But this is not what I want to say. Any of the thousands of flood victims can give an accounting of the losses, and everyone will tell you that now, six months later, something new is added to the list every day. 
It is not the physical fact of these things that I miss. It is the person who loved them and saved them. He, too, was swept away in the flood, slipping downstream the instant I kicked in the front door and stepped inside. What our agencies, organizations, and government programs cannot do is give us back our past. They cannot restore our belief in our own lives. We are not the same people who went to sleep the night the rains began to fall. We are two strangers now, standing on opposite banks of a swollen river. I want to call out to the person that I was, to tell him that it will be all right again if he can just cross the river and come back to me. But he cannot hear me. The sound of the rushing water drowns out my cries, and I am alone. Fires tend to be far more destructive disasters, but often impact fewer people than a flood. This year's wildfires in California being a notable exception. We think of a fire as something that happens now and again to some one person. A flood is something that happens to a community, to everyone. A flood prompts us to gather donations or to pitch in with cleanup. I only mention this because shortly after our move to Ohio, my wife was an adjunct, which is the grubby college word for freelancer, an adjunct teaching composition at one of the local colleges, and one of her students, a young man from Ghana named Edward, he lost everything he owned in an apartment fire. He was a 20-year-old student in a foreign country. I want to say he was in shock when I met him, but it doesn't seem to cover it. He was likely in shock from the fire, but dealing with culture shock as well. So, shock, shock. I guess that's better. The college was a small private deal started by an order of nuns. And while service is one of the four pillars of this particular order, it seemed, to my wife at least, that no one at the college was doing a damn thing about Edward and the fire. I didn't know if they didn't know about it, or if they were so small that this kind of thing didn't happen often enough that they had any response plan in place. So my very pregnant wife stepped up. She wrote emails to the administration. She reached out to kids in her classes, in our friends, in our families, and our neighbors. My old housemate Brady turned up with a decent couch. Other friends pulled together some decent clothes, which I'll admit I gave the once-over before bringing them to Edward because I didn't want him to have to deal with any one-back-pocket bullshit. On the evening, we had borrowed a van to haul stuff over to Edward's new place. Edward and a friend came over to help us load the couch and other things we had collected. We had just carried a desk out of the back room at the white cape cod with blue shutters when I caught sight of my chair, glued back together, and still proclaiming that I wasn't for posterity, sitting in a corner under a pile of blankets and coats. I couldn't remember the last time I had sat in it. Hey, Edward, I said, pulling the pile off of the chair. How about this chair, man? He stepped over and gave it a look. Just sit in it for a second, I said. And he sat down and leaned back and began the gently rocking that the chair just wanted you to do. It's a really good chair. Comfortable. You can do a lot of important thinking in a chair like this. Quick aside, 48-year-old me is sitting in this coffee shop right now thinking, what a dickhole thing to say to Edward. Am I right? 
I mean, he's barely getting by at the moment, having seen his whole life burned to a crisp. And here I am all like, oh, yeah, you need a chair to do some serious thinking in. I mean, eventually it's nice to have a thinking chair, but it's usually not in your top 10 list of needs in the weeks after a disaster. I remember about four days after the flood, one of my mom's friends sent us a dozen wine glasses. I owned three pairs of underwear at that moment, but I was all set to host a Chablis and Brie at our new apartment. That's what I mean about how surreal and hazy the recovery period is. Things happen, but in weird order, and your brain gets tired from the impact of it all. Edward, to his credit, just nodded and said, This is a good chair, and he closed his eyes and he rocked it back and forth for another minute or two. Let's load it up then, I said. And he and I lifted it, walked it down the hallway, out the front door, and into the back of the van. Wouldn't it be great if I said, and thus ends the story of my thinking chair. Like, finally, I've gotten a glimpse of my massive ego and I realize the unabashed puffery and shameless self-promotion that informed my entire relationship with the damn chair and column or no column decided to move the fuck on. But I didn't. Of course I didn't. I was out of newspapers by then, but I still had an impressive list of email addresses of just about everybody and anybody I knew in college. And I sat down and typed out a completely unbidden history of the chair, what had happened to it since they had last seen it in the TV room of 56 Stewart Street, including its disassembly, reassembly, flood destruction, and rebirth. I managed to make my megalomaniac self sound motherfucking magnanimous when I described how I decided to pass it along to Edward. And then, with my usual little-to-no editing, I just hit send and shot it out. The interwebs was mostly dial-ups at that time, so I guess I should say shouted out across the phone lines of the country to at least 50 people, of whom I am sure approximately three would remember the chair. I included some professors, for Christ's sakes, which probably made a few of them question just what the hell we can actually teach somebody in four short years of college. I held on to the flood socks for years more, for a reason that I'm embarrassed to admit. It made my wife insanely angry that I hung on to these socks. I asked her about it recently, and I also came clean with why they remained in our wash cycle for 20 years. The thing, the thing so, was, hang on was, a second. You knew what you were doing all these years, mm-hmm. and you just let me wash those fucking socks for 20 years and resent that this tragedy was going around and around and around with our whole family's darks for two generations or for two decades, one generation. You know, it's like you save all this weird stuff that nobody's allowed to touch. And it, it's like the flood socks. And then I think you, you, you wore them. They were going through the wash. I mean, it was sort of like penance or something. It's like, I don't know what you had to do penance about, but it was like this thing happened. It was terrible. It's over throw the socks out there's probably all kinds of weird fucked up microbes in those socks like some sort of texas e coli or something but anyway i'm ready to listen you only wanted me to say a few words about the socks but i have a lot of problems with them the thing is that i wrote about them in the newspaper and so since i wrote a column about them i thought i should have them for the future curator of the museum of me when they build a museum about my writing, what they would show the that fuck? column and they would have the socks right next to it. And that's honest to God truth at the heart of why I was doing it. So you thought that there would be like some shadow box mm-hmm. homage 
to your flood socks. But this very column uh-huh. would uh-huh. be there, which opens up. I speak now of socks. Oh my God, you are you are a disaster of a human being. I am a disaster. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but th- that's the shit of it, right? You'll die. I'll find those socks, and then I won't be able to throw them out. Oh yeah. <laughs> The flood socks, I can tell you, are now gone. Either she's managed to kill them off, or they simply disappeared in the way that socks do, likely over the course of the two house moves we've made in the past few years. Sorry, future curators of the Museum of Me. You'll have to make do with replicas for the flood years part of the exhibit. Before we go, I want to talk about the relationship between social media and posterity. Because I think there is one, and it's still figuring itself out. I've been on Facebook for about 10 years now, and I'm not a crazy poster or anything, but when I scroll down through my feed, I can see a digital record being formed of my life. Certainly not all of my life, but parts of it. And it tells a story that before, we could only tell with photo albums or self-aggrandizing columns in the local sports pages. Facebook, in fact, seems to cultivate this idea of being a personal historian of you. Instagram does too, but in more of a photo-forward kind of way. So are the things we post on there preserved for posterity, for however long the company remains in business, keeping its servers humming and backed up? Well, yeah. Whether you want it or not, your digital footprint seems like it has a much better chance at longevity on the servers of one of the largest tech companies there is than it does in a cardboard box in my basement. There's something about the forum, too, that gives a home to thoughts and feelings that otherwise had no real audience. It's not just pictures of my kids that I'm talking about, although they're probably the reason for most of my posts. I can trace my daughter's interests in cheerleading in middle school, switching over to drama club in high school, and my son's musical interests from cello to bassoon to baritone to barry sax. Before social media, who would know such things? My family, maybe? A few close friends? But now, say, I post a photo of my daughter in her costume for Beauty and the Beast. She was a creamer. Does my whole network of 600-plus friends weigh in? Of course not. But in addition to likes from my friends, a former classmate who had been in drama club might post, she's going to love it. And me and this person with whom I'd otherwise never connect? We're connected, for an instant. In our excitement for a kiddo getting into theater... It's not just that social media creates a running history for us, nor even that it opens us up to a larger audience, although both of those things are true. It's that it creates a home for a new kind of content that elicits a new kind of response. Digital empathy, I'll call it. And it does this in a way that we've never had before. Here's another example. For reasons unknown, although likely just to drive her crazy, I used to like to see how long I could leave the Halloween pumpkins on the front porch before it drove my poor wife crazy and she threw them out. Or, you know, threatens to divorce me unless I throw them out. And here, in central Ohio, November and December are never consistently cold. So it's not like they freeze solid and that's that. They might never freeze. They might freeze and then unfreeze for a few days, then thaw entirely, then freeze again. And they get gooier and gooier through this process. My record is January 4th, by the way. Those pumpkins were a horrific glop by the time we got to that date, and I took a photo of them on a digital camera 
downloaded it to my computer and managed to get it uploaded to Facebook, this at a time when adding a photo to a status post was still somewhat novel. And I wrote, New Pumpkin Record, January 4. I'll try and post this picture on the Pete Brown Says Instagram if I can. The comments below the picture broke one of two ways. Males, who I'd been friends with in high school and grade school, thought it was hilarious. Women who were married wanted to know why I tortured my poor wife. But here's the thing. The mushy pumpkin photos represent a kind of content that never really had an audience before social media. And even though the image is being preserved, it was not posted for posterity so much as it was to find itself an audience or to make a fleeting connection with somebody. It's the place where stuff like the scuba mask you wore to a drinking party or the thinking chair you hauled around the country or a dead pet or a mushy pumpkin can live momentarily. If I was writing my column in the social media age, it would appear below my post headlined by a picture of my flood socks, and then I'd be done with them. I'd have processed their meaning to me and squeeze whatever use from them I needed to do to just move on. I learn a lot about myself in an essay like this, five or 6,000 words, where I try and see plainly and truthfully what's motivating my behavior in certain situations. To fully and directly face embarrassing facts, like I was probably saving my flood socks for a future museum curator or local librarian. And I have to face the fact that sometimes, given all my years and many miles, despite thousands and thousands of words spread across a set of afternoons at a coffee shop, I never change. I fall prey to my worst inclinations, that I'm still a man-child seeking a moment of attention in an otherwise careless world. Because there's one more social media post that I am waiting to write, and I've been waiting to write for years. And believe it or not, it's about a motherfucking chair. You see, in 2000, when I moved my family to central Ohio, I was stoked to be back within a stone's throw of my alma mater. And immediately that year, set to work planning an excursion there for the homecoming game. And as we came closer to that date, I bought two blue canvas sports chairs at the sporting goods store for $7.99 each. You know the chairs I'm talking about, right? They fold up into like a log shape, and they come with a bag you're supposed to store them in. Parents line the sides of soccer pitches and baseball diamonds with them, sitting in neat rows and cheering for their kids. These canvas chairs seem to have replaced folding aluminum lawn chairs, which is what my parents had growing up. But the folding sports chair, it seems to me, was born into an era of disposability. They're not built for the long haul. After a few years, they fade. The canvas weakens. Inevitably, they break or are tossed away just before a big event, and a new one is procured for maybe $9.99. Actually, I just did a quick search, and the same chairs are on sale at Sears for $6.99 this week, so it's actually cheaper than when I bought mine 18 years ago. I've never heard of anyone repairing a sling chair like this. I just don't think that's a thing. If you force me to guess, I'd put the average life expectancy of a sling chair at five years on the long end. But in most cases, I think these chairs live about as long as the average carnival goldfish. So I noticed with interest about 10 years ago that I had one of those original two chairs still going strong. Its twin was lost somewhere along the way but the remaining chair seemed determined to go on for some sort of world record. It is now 18 years old. 18! The cup holder has been ripped off and the arm is holding onto the bar with just a few threads. The canvas had originally been dipped on the underside in rubber or plastic, something to keep the moisture from seeping through onto your bum, I think. 
but that's since peeled away and it hangs down in torn shards. You can literally see through the remaining canvas on the seat. And it's been in my garage through two moves for years. It's where I sit when I'm done mowing the lawn or if a storm rolls through and I want to watch the rain. I wouldn't call it a thinking chair, per se, but it is definitely a chair I think about a lot. Because one day, it's going to go. I mean, the laws of physics are at play here, and sooner or later, the seat will be unable to hold whatever behind plops down in it. I've seen it happen in my mind. Imagine myself taking a final picture of it and writing just a few words. Quote, I bought this blue canvas chair when I moved to Ohio almost 20 years ago. It has held on in my garage all these years. It is the chair I sit in after mowing the lawn or to watch a rainstorm roll through. And now, his watch has ended. Hashtag respect. You know where that's going, right? On to social media, where it will inadvertently be saved for posterity, where it might find an audience who appreciates the unusual longevity of the chair itself. Is this me being an egomaniac? Or just someone seeking a fleeting moment of connection, a microdose of digital empathy? Am I making a dead cat out of an old chair? Or am I just trying to put a little story somewhere where it might survive? A place designed for this kind of stuff. A process to let me move on with my life. I don't know the answer to that. I do know this. The party I told you about earlier, the one where the millennial told me all about her dead cat, and in case you're wondering if I changed my mind some 8,000 words later, I have not. Dead cats are still sad. It was a pretty big party for us. The kind of party where you ask to borrow tables and chairs from the neighbors. Where coolers are filled with ice and drinks, and still you fill up the fridge in the garage with more beverages. A big party, you know? And that's what I was doing, stocking the garage fridge, when my wife came out and asked me to help carry some tables and chairs around to the backyard. It was just a couple of trips, and on the last one, I spied my blue chair leaning in the corner. This is going to be a big party, I thought. We know we have more people coming than we have chairs, right? So I stepped over and hoisted it up to my shoulder and turned to leave the garage. What are you doing? My wife asked. Bringing chairs around, I said. We've got so many people coming. My wife crossed her arms. No, she said. Not that one. But the people, I said. No, she snapped. That chair is not invited to the party and the air ran out of the garage for a moment, and I lowered it down slowly and opened it up and set it there next to the garage fridge. You're going to have to sit this one out, old boy, I whispered to it. And then I stepped out of the garage and pushed the button to lower the door, watching as darkness consumed the chair. And as I turned to head to the backyard, I found my wife, looking at me with her arms crossed. Then she said this thing that was in the movie Cool Runnings, if you believe it. Something she says to me a lot. Sometimes I say it to her. It's one of our things, you know. Whatever's wrong with you, she said. It's no small thing. And silently, I had to agree. At least, for the sake of posterity. Good times. Okay, hope you liked that. Thanks for sticking around. This has been my longest episode to date, so 
It's going to be interesting to see how it performs. So, bonus content. Again, my newsletter subscribers have the direct link to the bonus episode in the last email that I sent to the newsletter list. If you want to be on that list, you can just head to PeteBrownSays.com, click on Newsletter, and drop in your email address, and you'll be the first to know when there are new episodes, hidden episodes, or anything else I need to communicate to my listeners. So in today's show, you heard me read excerpts from some of my old sports columns from my time in newspapers in the late 90s. I had gone ahead and actually recorded the entire columns while I was preparing this episode. So there's a full column that I wrote one week after the flood, a column I wrote six months after the flood, and then a third column I wrote one year after the flood, a sort of flood trilogy. And so I've stitched those entire recordings together into one little bonus episode. And if you want to hear those in their entirety, here's what you do. Just go to peepbrownsays.fireside.fm slash 024. So that's the direct URL for the hidden episode. Uh, it can only be played on that webpage. You won't be able to get it in your podcast apps. That's peepbrownsays.fireside.fm slash 024. And I just want to point out that I know that I use a very similar sentence in the one week after the flood and the six month after the flood column. Uh, I think in part because I was still thinking about that particular sentence. Uh, But it was also that six month column was at a different newspaper with a much different style than the other two. And if you're still wanting to listen to the very first hidden episode I did this year, which was a behind-the-scenes story for Episode 8, The Big Lie, again, newsletter subscribers have that link, but if you'd just like to check it out, head to peepbrownsays.fireside.fm backslash 021. So that's the other hidden episode I've put out this year, peepbrownsays.fireside.fm slash 021. Thanks again for listening, everybody. If you like the show, tell a friend or two about it, or leave me a review on iTunes. Brown Says is a work of creative nonfiction audio, written and produced by me, Pete Brown, and is the property of Blue Monkey Communications. This show is written to the best of my memory. At times, names, timelines, and events have been changed, though I will try to let you know when that is happening. You can learn more about the basketball-themed board game Hoopsters at hoopsters.store. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Pete Brown Says, and submit a story of your own or sign up for the newsletter at PeteBrownSays.com. There's also a link there to buy me a cup of coffee if you want to help cover production expenses. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it. I'm growing an audience one listener at a time, and your help is crucial to that effort. Music and sound effects in this episode have been sourced and licensed from the websites Audionautics.com, Freesound.org, and PodcastMusic.com. The opening music is by Brian Hake, and some interstitials are by Kevin Davison. Their now-defunct band Delicious performs the show's theme song, I'm Not Myself. We'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks. Until then, and as always, good times, everyone. Good times. Good times.